Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This interview with playwright Terry Baum aired in a half-hour version on KPFA on December 29, 2014. Since those performances at the Berkeley City Club in January 2015, Hick, A Love Story, has been produced around the country in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. Terry Baum performed her play at the San Francisco Fringe Festival one year ago in September 2019. My guest is Terry Baum, who is the performer of Hick, A Love Story, the romance of Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt, which will be playing at Berkeley City Club January 2nd through the 25th. Terry Baum is a noted playwright, has been writing plays since 1972, founded Lilith, San Francisco's theater collective, in 1974, has toured Europe, has run for mayor of San Francisco, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. In addition to that, writes comedy and is part of a comedy group with Carolyn Myers called Crackpot Crones. And Carolyn Myers is also the director of Hick, A Love Story. What brought you on to the idea of creating a play based on the letters and materials about Lorena Hickok and her relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, this is not the first play about this. The first play was by Pat Bond, who opened her play in 1985 in San Francisco and did it quite a bit over, around the country. And I was her best friend. So I saw it then. And when she died, I started the Pat Bond Memorial Old Dyke Award in her honor, which happens every few years when we all get it together and have this major selection and a huge party and all that. So Pat did this play about Hick because she'd been in love. She was quite a bit older than me. She was born in 1925, and and she'd been in love with Eleanor Roosevelt her whole life since she was about seven. So when it came out that Eleanor Roosevelt actually had a lesbian lover who, in fact, was quite a bit like Pat, she was destined to write this play. So the Crackpot Crones were doing our standard comedy, stand uh, it's not stand-up comedy, it's sketch comedy and improvisation show. And we wanted to do it as a benefit for the next Pat Bond Old Dyke Awards. So Carolyn and I said, let's look at Pat's plays. The scripts are in the San Francisco library and do a scene. So we did a scene from Pat's play, which is about the very beginning of Hick and Eleanor's relationship, something that Pat had to really completely imagine. There's not much record of it. And it was so moving to the audience and it gripped me so much, I felt I have to create my own play. I felt that Pat was a storyteller. I'm a playwright. There's so much more material out about Hick and Eleanor now than there was when Pat did her play. 
I felt I could do something really different. And what year was her play originally? I think written? 85. 85. Yeah. And when did you do this um, this performance? This very first one uh, in 2012, I think. Just a scene. One of Pat's scenes. It took you how long? About a year to write the play? or. You know, I'm one of those people who never stops writing, you know. It took a year before we did a workshop production in 2013. So that was very important to be able to put up something full length. We were able to do this because we had a residency at the garage in San Francisco. But it just was for two nights, minimal production. And then after that, I went back and did research at the FDR library. I spent a week in their archives, reading all the materials in their collection of Hick. And that was a real revelation to me, really drastically changed my viewpoint on her. How so? All the people who write about her, the straight and the gay ones, take the position that Eleanor only stayed connected to Hick because she felt sorry for her. I felt, when I actually read the letters, the later letters that Eleanor wrote to Hick, that simply wasn't true. That this was another way of devaluing, really, women's friendships are devalued always. I mean, after the affair, which was very intense, there was a friendship that lasted until Eleanor died. And that's very important, too. So that's one of the things that my play is about. When you talk about the affair and then the friendship, when was the affair? The affair was 32 through, I don't know, 35 or something. It's not exactly clear, but the editor of the collection of their letters, it's called Empty Without You, it's quite a good collection, and he has a lot of commentary along the way, and he felt after they went on this vacation in 1934 to Yosemite National Park that Eleanor stopped saying certain things afterwards that she said before. In other words, quite often she fantasized about the life they would have, she and Hick, when FDR was no longer president. You know, that they were both just waiting for him to stop being president, which, of course, went on much longer than anybody could have imagined. And they were going to run off together and have this quiet little life reading poetry to each other. She didn't say any of those things after this trip to Yosemite in which Hick, who was extremely frustrated by everybody demanding Eleanor's attention, blew up in front of a bunch of tourists. That is recorded in Hick's writing, that incident where she felt that she had just crossed a line, really. Let's go back, Terry Baum. There are two stories here. One is how this came to light. But let's go back and talk a little bit about this relationship, which still is not that well known, and a lot of people still deny that it happened entirely. Including Ken Burns. Eleanor Roosevelt was married to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Hick, Lorena Hickok, was a reporter. She was the most famous and most highly paid woman journalist of the time, and she was a star of the Associated Press. And she was assigned to cover Eleanor the first time FDR ran for president. And in fact, it was Hick's idea that Eleanor deserved her own reporter. 
So in a way, Hicks saw Eleanor as this great media figure before anybody else. So in 32 now, he's running for president. Yes. And she is the chief AP reporter. And she, at that point, met Eleanor for the first time? New York City was her base, so she had met Eleanor in covering the governor of New York State. Eleanor was extremely distant at that time. She was terrified of reporters. I would say very early on, she saw that Eleanor was an incredible activist and could have a a major influence in the world, I think even before she fell in love with her. Did Franklin know about his wife? Do we have any inclination? We don't really have any inclination. They kind of were ships passing in the night a lot of times. He, in fact, and according to a lot of sources, he was sneaking in Lucy Mercer, who was his original passion that disrupted his marriage to Eleanor the whole time he was in the White House. But he liked Hick very much. He really liked her a lot. So I don't think he was aware of it. I don't. So it wasn't you know, an arrangement of beards, let's say. No, not at all. Not as far as I know. So Hick and Eleanor met. Somehow the connection became clear and the affair began. Is that correct? Right. And that lasted until Hick blew up. But it was also a period, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of it, but it was also a period when it became clear by 1935 that On the world stage, events were starting to change. Yes, that's right. And Eleanor's role was growing because of what was going on with the New Deal. That's right. And Hick actually became the main chronicler of the New Deal. The tragedy of Hick's life was that she had to stop being a reporter because of her relationship with Eleanor. She couldn't escape the conflict You know, the AP was always pressuring her to reveal the goods on the Roosevelt's and what was going on in the White House, and she insisted that was her personal life, and finally she quit. So Harry Hopkins created a job for her. She was chief investigator of the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, and for three and a half years, she traveled around the country reporting on the New Deal. And those reports, which just went to Hopkins and FDR, FDR shared them with Congress, too, because since Hick was a journalist, she didn't just record facts. She also took down people's gripping stories of what they were going through. And these stories actually moved Congress people to vote for programs that they were not predisposed to vote for. So that's what Hick did, but she never really found her niche. She was a reporter. She belonged with the news hounds, and so she fell away from that. But in fact, as things started heating up in Europe, Hick said, I got to go over there. Any reporter worth their salt has to be in Europe. That's where it's happening. And Eleanor said, please don't go. I want you to be near me. So she didn't. Did she ever get over there? No. She wanted to be available to Eleanor, and she they wrote books together, and uh, and she also had another love relationship, but Eleanor was always number one. And this continued, and people just knew her as Eleanor's friend. So, well, she was called the press called her first friend in the beginning. That was what she was called, first friend. And that's kind of 
I guess, shorthand in some way. Yeah, it was, actually. And the Hearst papers, which were always the most scandal-prone, there was some innuendo in them about a lesbian relationship. But, of course, it was just so far-fetched. I mean, a lot of people really just didn't think it was possible for two women to have a sexual relationship. But at the same time, generally... What happened in Washington stayed in Washington. It wasn't like Hollywood. That's right. There was a complete wall that the reporters agreed, that the whole journalistic community agreed to keep up, which continued for a long time. JFK benefited from that, too. Everybody knows JFK had all these affairs and, and the press knew, and they never said anything. So Eleanor Roosevelt passes away first, or does Hick pass away first? No, Eleanor passed away six years before Hick. And nothing came out about this until when? Hick died in 68. She gave all her papers to the FDR library with the proviso that they could not be opened for 10 years. So in 1978, the first biographer of Hick actually went to the FDR archive. She wrote biographies for teenagers. So she wanted to do one on Eleanor, and she arrived three days after the papers became available. In other words, 10 years and three days after Hick had died. And they said, well, you want to write about Eleanor Roosevelt? We've got 18 boxes of papers from a close friend of hers. Nobody's looked at them yet. So she looked at them, and her first action was to try to convince the head of the library to burn all of Eleanor's letters. So, (laughs) I mean, this woman is really a piece of work. This is not a rumor. In the biography, she introduces it by saying, I tried to get all this material repressed and destroyed, but they wouldn't do it, so then I decided to write a book about it. Very, very strange. What was the book? Did the book talk about this at all? Well, it quotes the letters and then says, these words don't mean what you think they mean. (laughs) You know, that same old thing. Women back in the day talked in this flowery way to each other. They were just friends. She even says at one point, you have to understand, both of these women were born. Queen Victoria was still alive. (laughs) The fact that they were, you know... Five and 15 years old when Victoria died, still it influenced their whole lives. So she was denying it as she's presenting it. And then what happened? Somebody else saw the letters? No, no. She published a book. And the reviewers of the main papers, the LA Times, the Washington Post said, this proves that Eleanor Roosevelt had a lesbian relationship. The book came out in 81 or 82, something like that. So to an intelligent late 20th century intellect, it was obvious from having read the book that Eleanor Roosevelt had had a sexual romantic relationship with Lorena Hick. You're listening to an interview with Terry Baum, who is the performer of a one-woman show, Hick, A Love Story, The Romance of Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt, which is playing at Berkeley City Club January 2nd through the 25th. At that point, Pat Bond in 85 wrote her play. Right. And that's all she had to work on was this biography. That's right. Okay. She did no other research. I don't think so. And nobody else did, so it became easy for someone like Ken Burns to pretend it wasn't there. That's right. 
No, no, that's not true. Eleanor's most important recent biographer is Blanche Wisen Cook, who, in fact, was drawn to do a biography of Eleanor by reading the Hick biography because she said, oh, Eleanor isn't this sort of prudish, prim, you know, workaholic that she was always depicted as. There is something there much deeper and much more embracing of life and much more passionate than people have talked about in terms of Eleanor Roosevelt. So now she's done two volumes of her biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. We are all anxiously awaiting the third. It's going to be the last. Blanche herself is an out lesbian, but she, of course, also acknowledges that this is evidence of a lesbian relationship. We're not talking about Hick's letters to Eleanor because it's very easy to prove that Hick was in love with Eleanor and Hick was an obvious bull dyke. But Eleanor's letters to Hick prove that Eleanor was in love with Hick. Terry Baum, you do this play written by Pat Bond. An excerpt, a short excerpt. At that point, you begin to do your own research. Right, because I felt called to do it. I felt I am the one who is supposed to write this play about Hick, and I am the one who is supposed to perform it. This is part of the reason I'm on this earth. It was very, very strong and clear, and it continues to be that way. So you go to Washington? No, Hyde Park. They're in Hyde Park, New York. Yeah, that's where the FDR library is. Did you find boxes? How did that work? Well, they bring out all the stuff. You know, they've organized it into categories. You know, the letters from Hick to Eleanor, from Eleanor to Hick, letters from friends, you know, all these different things. You know, you can only order 10 boxes at a time. When you're done with that, they bring out another 10 boxes. It's just an incredibly exhilarating, exciting thing. So what was the first letter you read that said, my God, this is real? There were so many touching things. One of them was Hick's calendars, where she circled the days that she saw Eleanor and crossed out the days that she didn't see Eleanor. And then another one was this wonderful letter. Of course, it was just a letter, but Eleanor had sent it to her with rose petals from a rose in her garden because she wanted Hick to be there and see it with her. And that letter is in the play. Frankly, Eleanor Roosevelt's handwriting is absolutely impossible to read. When I talked to the archivist, they said, how do you decipher these letters? And they said, we do it in a group. One person can't. Of course, I went there thinking, I'm going to discover the perfect Eleanor Roosevelt letter that nobody else. But that was a very difficult thing to do because it just gave you a splitting headache to try to read them. What was the greatest revelation you found? Like I said, the biggest revelation was their friendship continued until Eleanor died. The last letter that Eleanor wrote, she dictated from her hospital bed. And she said, I'm weak. As soon as I'm strong enough to pick up the phone, I'll call you. Is there any possibility that after Franklin died, they resumed? Or is that just absolutely not true? No, no, their, their paths were separate by then. I mean, Eleanor quickly became first lady of the world. That was her title. Just a few months after FDR died, Truman appointed her to the United Nations. And then she was the person who led in the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and also led the 
incredibly difficult struggle of getting it signed by all these nations. At that point, she was on a different level, going all over the world. Was there anything that was not involved in the relationship? About Eleanor? Yeah. Oh, my God. She's a a very uh, risk-taking person. I mean, she wanted to go up in a plane with Amelia Earhart. She was a very fast, reckless driver. She loved to drive. I mean, this is a person who just loved life and experience and wanted to receive it all as intensely as possible. So that's very cool. I mean, just hearing Hick, reading what Hick says about driving with Eleanor was a revelation for sure. I mean, she kept all this quiet. We think of Eleanor Roosevelt. We think of this uptight woman who did great things, but she had that weird voice and everything. Right. Well, apparently her voice in speaking to people directly wasn't that high voice. That happened because she was nervous. At least Hicks said that. Oh, one of the things about Eleanor that's very interesting, perhaps not surprising in terms of what she did, she just did not give a damn what anybody said about her. She just didn't. And that was one of the ways that she was able to keep going. And at one point in their letters, uh, Hick is saying, these photographers are terrible. You know, why can't you get a photographer who takes a good picture of you? They're not being accurate. (laughs) Eleanor writes Hick back and she said, well, my dear, all I know is if you've got buck teeth and a receding chin, it's going to show up on the photographic plate. (laughs) She was just so down to earth about it. Nothing about any other affairs, not men, women, nothing else. Oh, Eleanor? Yeah. Her bodyguard, Earl Miller, who had been, I think, FDR's bodyguard when he was governor, but then he became Eleanor's bodyguard. And a lot of Eleanor's friends felt that that was an unseemly relationship and that he was often touching her inappropriately. However, the only photograph that shows them touching shows Eleanor touching him inappropriately. She's got her hand on his knee. And he he did get married. Very unhappy marriages. Always went back to he was in Eleanor's sphere. Always went back there. So as Hicks says in my play, once you've been had by Eleanor Roosevelt, you stay had. That might have happened to Earl too. His letters do not exist anymore. They have been totally destroyed. A lot of people speculate that Eleanor Roosevelt also had an affair with her bodyguard, but we don't know. And Hick, did she wind up in a long-term relationship? She had a long-term relationship before Eleanor, long before Eleanor. And then after the relationship, the lust part cooled, a beautiful young judge, Marion Heron, fell head over heels in love with Hick. That was one of the revelations was to read Marion's letters to Hick and to see how deep her feelings were for Hick. But Hick, although she loved Marion and enjoyed being with her, always put Eleanor first. So when FDR died and Eleanor moved back to Hyde Park, Hick followed her. And Marion worked and lived 
in Maryland. She worked in the courts of D.C., and she was supporting an old mother. She could not move with Hick. Anyhow, why would you move when your girlfriend is following her ex? (laughs) That would be dumb. Marion was foolish enough to fall in love with Hick, but not foolish enough to move to Hyde Park. Terry Bomb, okay, so you've got all this material, and you're turning it into a play, and you're taking these letters and other material. Do you try to play those two women on stage? No, not really. I'm always Hick. Creating it in my head, writing it, I'm trying to be both of them. But on stage, Hick is sometimes talking to an invisible Eleanor and then telling us what Eleanor is saying, but she's telling us as Hick. Every single moment on stage, I am Hick. Eleanor is only seen through Hick's eyes and Hick's reporting of it. Every single word of the letters intertwined through the play are verbatim quotes from the letters. So there's a documentary aspect of the play because I want people to be able to decide for themselves whether this relationship happened in the way I say or not. So there is a lot of material all through the play that is verbatim quotes from Eleanor Roosevelt's letters, and I had to get permission from the Roosevelt estate to use them. Wow. Was that hard? Well, I wrote to the relative who was in charge, and she, in fact, asked me. She said when she wrote back that she was impressed by my resume, so perhaps she would not have given permission to somebody who didn't have a lot of experience, but she wrote back and said, what is your opinion of their relationship? And I wrote back and I said they were in love, and then Eleanor fell out of love, but Hick never did and then they were friends for the rest of Eleanor's life, and she gave me permission. Those are Eleanor's words that she wrote to Lorena Hickok. That's what you hear, and there's a voice. We have an an actress who has been recorded, Paula Barris. She's very wonderful. You hear Paula reading Eleanor's letters, and whenever you hear that voice, that's verbatim. Terry Baum, let's move on to the rest of your career. Uh, you grew up in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And did you always, were you always attracted to theater? Yes. I think everyone starts out in theater. As children, we play games where we take on different personas. I always was the dog or the horse because I wasn't allowed to have one. Were you in theater at Antioch College? Yes, I have a BA in theater from Antioch and an MA with an emphasis in directing from UC Santa Barbara. I moved to the Bay Area in 1974. How did you get involved in theater here? I started one. I moved to Berkeley first and three years later to San Francisco. I arrived in Berkeley and I said, I want to start a women's theater collective, only women, because I had just been in a theater where I was the only woman, where everybody else was a man and they were really nice guys, but I felt like, wow, women really have a different point of view. (laughs) I want to be surrounded by that. Just the word went out to friends and two people showed up who said, I want to be in your theater. And the three of us started Lilith. Where'd you get funding? You didn't have funding in those days. You just did it. Did it a lot of places. We opened at Live Oak Theater. We performed at the old intersection in North Beach. There was a theater on 8th Street in Berkeley we performed in. We performed a lot of places. 
Is that where you met Carolyn Myers? Uh, no, I knew Carolyn from UC Santa Barbara, where I got my master's. I was kind of a compulsive founder of theaters. <laughs> it's just easier for me to start something myself than to try to fit into something that already exists. When you founded Lilith, were you writing the plays for them at that point? We were improvising and taping our improvs and transcribing them and working with them. So I very gradually moved towards writing as a first step. That only started happening like the third year of Lilith when I would have ideas for improvisations that people didn't seem to get. So I sort of really crept very slowly into being a playwright. The first solo show I did was in 1981, so quite often I was doing both. 1986, Terry Baum, you moved to Amsterdam. Why? I had fallen in love with a Dutch woman. I went there for a theater festival, and I met a Dutch woman and fell in love. You also won a KPFA playwriting competition. That's right. It might have been the only one you ever had. I don't know. <laughs> but in fact... Yeah, I won it with my play Immediate Family, and then you recorded me doing it. So somewhere in your archives, <laughs> you've got a tape of me doing Immediate Family. And there was a film made of that? A short film, yes, that has just a 15-minute kind of capsule thing that has played at several uh, gay film festivals. You produced a play in 2004 for Rhino? That was Two Fools or Love Conquers All Not. That was a play that I wrote and wasn't in. It was two women, uh, an American and Costa Rican, who fell in love and couldn't legally live together. And also Waiting for the Podiatrist? That was based on my own experiences of uh, my father being in the intensive care unit in a coma and uh, being in the wa waiting room with my mother. <laughs> I'd like to ask you about the difference between writing comedy and writing drama. Is there a difference, Terry Baum? Immediate family's a drama. Hick, a love story's a drama. Well, so is Two Fools, but there's always a lot of comedy mixed in. Even in my most comic piece, which is One Fool, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Dutch, there are a few serious moments, but I would say very few. It's mostly mocking myself. I would say that's the most comic thing I've ever written. So it's a matter of proportion. In a comedy, you want to just have the, the people laughing quite frequently. But really, that's true in any of my plays. I'd always like to find a laugh where I can. And there are plenty of laughs in Hick and Immediate Family, which is about a woman at the bedside of her comatose wife and waiting for the podiatrist, which is about a middle-aged lesbian and her mother in the hospital room or the waiting room where the father's in a coma. So immediate family is mostly serious. It's realistic. Realism tends more to be drama, whereas when you are making the characters a little exaggerated and cartoony, as I do in Waiting for the Podiatrist, that in general goes to comedy. So I would say partly it's the orientation of the characters. Well, when I've talked to directors, they say in no matter what play it is, 
you have to play it in front of an audience to make sure that the audience isn't ahead of you. I would think in a comedy, you would also want to make sure that the jokes are funny. Of course. One of the strange things that happens, like in One Fool, I had gotten a new belt for this performance. I toured One Fool everywhere, and I could not get the price tag off of this belt. So I said, okay, I'm going to make a joke about the price tag and put in the play. Well, I got a huge laugh about it. I got laughs on that price tag for many months, and then all of a sudden people stopped laughing about the price tag. I never could figure out why they stopped laughing, but I had to take off the price tag. That's strange. (laughs) So, yes, if you are doing something just for a laugh and you're not getting it, you cut it. But a lot of times, something can be seen as funny or not funny, and you have to embrace both sides of that. Do you think it's better to underplay comedy rather than go over the top? It so depends on the style. Certainly in Hick, there are comic moments which are the result of Hick's ironic viewpoint on what's happening to her. For me to make her a cartoon at that point would undermine the play. It really depends on what the whole feeling of the play is. If it's an extreme play, go for it. If it's a non-realistic character play, go for it. Go as far as you can. Hey, I'm a clown. When it comes to it, I love being a clown. That's over the top. Speaking of over the top, Terry Baum, you ran for mayor in 2011. Well, I also ran for Congress against Nancy Pelosi in 2004. (laughs) In the case of 2011, the point was not to get elected or even necessarily to get votes, but to change the conversation. Yes, and I did. That was very exciting and really a lot of fun. It's probably the same way in Berkeley, but in San Francisco, when you run for a local office, I don't know how many forums there are. Every single neighborhood, every single group has a forum where the candidates are invited to speak. Now, some of these forums I was not invited to, which I should have been, so I had to crash them. So that was always fun because they would threaten to arrest me. Well, what happened when you crashed them? They couldn't arrest me because that would have been the best thing that could have happened to me. I was not invited to the forum on the arts, the forum set up by the Arts Commission. It was about talking about the problems and issues of the arts in San Francisco. I was the only artist running for mayor. They would not let me be on the panel. I'd already crashed the really big forum that had been at the Castro Theater. So I was trying to figure out how to get on stage. Somebody from the audience came and said, hey, Terry, I saw you at the Castro. I'll give you a boost. And then they came and said, the, the same people who said I couldn't be in it, you know, came and said, you have to leave. I said, I'm not leaving. They said, okay, we're going to call the police. I said, okay, call the police. Then they go off and think about it. And they come back. They always decide it's wiser to let me be in the forum than to call the police. I was the only Green who was running. Yes, and I was the farthest left candidate for sure. And they didn't want any piece of that. They didn't. But you know what? The other candidates were very open to it. And many of them told me that I elevated the tone of the debate because 
when I started out going to the forums, everybody was just regurgitating sound bites, except for me. And I would say, I have this idea and that idea, and we could do this and that. Well, you can only do the soundbite thing if everybody's doing it. If one person is talking directly, presenting ideas, and the other people are gurgling sound bites, they sound ridiculous. So everybody had to start talking about real ideas and plans. I'm not a visionary that far in politics. Many of the ideas I brought up in those forums were not my ideas initially, but I was the first one to bring them up in the forums, and many of them were taken up by other candidates who were much more mainstream than me. And you wrote a play about when you ran for Congress. Yes. You ever think about writing a play about running for mayor? Not really. It was such a satisfying experience in itself. I had a great time and I did a lot of good. That reminds me of the relationship of theater and politics. How do you see theater in terms of changing consciousness? I feel I was someone who did participate in changing consciousness. My play that I wrote with Carolyn Myers, Dos Lesbos, inspired the first anthology of plays by lesbians. There's a kind of validation. If you are a marginal group, there is an empowerment in seeing yourself on stage. Then it's hard to imagine now, but really when Dos Lesbos was first done, which was 1981, there were no images of lesbians in any media that reflected how lesbians were actually living their lives. That was a factor in changing my play, Immediate Family, which actually was part part of the struggle for gay marriage. I wrote it in 1983 before it became a major issue in the gay rights movement. But even before that, that play was performed in Boise, Idaho, and Philadelphia when there was anti-gay initiatives on the ballot. We're talking about in the 90s. And I'm very, very proud of that, that people used my plays to influence the outcome of an election. It can have that kind of really direct effect. Even. And that effect goes beyond the kind of effect necessarily that you'll get in film or television because you're right there on stage. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't demand the kind of resources that film and television demand. It's just people standing in front of people acting out a story. It's very basic, really. It's one of the first art forms people did around the fire. It's how we developed language, probably, was through acting out things in theater. It's very primal, I believe. Terry Baum, Hick, a love story, plays through January 25th. What else are you working on? I'm also working on a play. The title is Mikvah. It takes place in a Jewish shtetl, little village in Poland at the turn of the century. The mikvah is the Jewish ritual bath, and women have to purify themselves after their periods every month. Married women have to do this. This is about a very intense affair between the mikvah attendant 
and a young woman who's coming. The first time you go to the mikveh as a woman is when you're preparing to be married. Not a one-woman show. Not a one-woman show. I don't see myself in it at all. It's very much a critique of the patriarchy that has pushed these women into this very difficult, oppressed position. You've been listening to an interview with Terry Baum, who is the author and the star of Hick, A Love Story. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm -hmm.